Hiya, Ed here with your friendly reminder to check the show notes for any content warnings related to this episode of the Unbreakable Movie Chain. Also, just in case we've fucked up massively and made any big old spoilers related to any other movies, we'll pop those in the show notes too, so you can consider yourselves fully warned. Thank you, enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to The Unbreakable Movie Chain, the podcast where we take a look at a movie that we've chosen based on a link to the previous episode's movie. I'm Madeline Gould and I'm here with Ed Howells. Hi, Ed. Hello. Hello. <laughs> How's it going? I'm all right. How have you been since we last spoke and what have you been watching? Oh, I've been very well, thank you very much. And uh, I've, I've watched an awful lot of films in the last few weeks. Don't worry, I'm not going to talk about them all. <laughs> <laughs> The good, the bad. <laughs> yeah, because honestly, it, it would take ages. I don't know where I found the time, uh, but I think I've probably watched about 10 movies in the last two weeks. Really? Uh, Gosh. Yeah, including the one that we're going to discuss today. Which you've um, watched twice, as you always do, because you I have managed to watch twice, yeah. <laughs> You're a much better podcaster than I am. Uh, it's just because the, the, <laughs> the, the, the first time I watch it, I struggle to pay attention. I don't really understand what I'm looking at. So mm. the second time, I need to actually yeah, knuckle yeah. down. Yeah, so... Um, I would like to just focus on three things, actually, that I, I saw them all in the cinema. The first one I want to talk about very quickly is the new Nicolas Cage movie, Dream Scenario, which I really, 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 really enjoyed. I think it's it's fabulous. And I had one of those moments where I uh, related to the central character a lot more strongly than I'm comfortable with. Um, <laughs> oh, right. Are you about to tell me that you've become a meme? <laughs> Oh God, no. Actually, a couple of things that I've seen this week sort of focus on men of middle to late middle age, mm-hmm. to some extent, who are a little bit lost in their lives and a little bit feeling... It's a midlife, midlife crisis movie, essentially. Mm, mm, okay. <laughs> um, like, Gemma, hate me for saying this because she thinks that Nicolas Cage is the dead spit of her dad in the movie. <laughs> um, but the whole time I'm watching it, I'm sat there going, ah, Nicolas Cage is playing this sort of nothing sad sack and he looks exactly like me. He is basically... <laughs> <laughs> like, so m- my look is essentially middle-aged uh, perennial underachiever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that is my look. And that that is the exact look that, uh, that Cage has gone for in this movie. And I found that unsettling um is this a look that you've um, you've curated carefully ed <laughs> <laughs> it is it is <laughs> i find it's very helpful in my daily life it means people don't make conversation with me <laughs> i mean it is worth pointing out that a lot of your look is dictated by what work you happen to be doing at the time so it's... that's often true it's yeah. not right now the case though <laughs> oh right okay <laughs> you just happen to look like nick cage yeah, exactly. It's not a, it's not a comparison I would have drawn by the way. <laughs> Just Well, wait, wait wait until you've watched Dream Scenario and you'll go. Oh, okay. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. I see exactly what he's talking about. Uh, long story short, I thoroughly enjoyed Dream Scenario, as did yeah. Jen. Um, so yeah, I saw that, and then uh, the next day, in fact, I went to see uh, Clockwork Orange um, at the Electric Cinema. Yeah, which 
is great. It's a deeply unsettling movie. It's, yeah. Had you seen it before? I had seen it before, yeah. Not in a long time. Mm. And I'd, I'd never seen it on a big screen before. Yeah, Clockwork Orange is not, it's not a fun movie. It's not a movie that I would say I enjoyed very much. Because, it, yeah, it's it, it's it's really horrible. Um, But what I liked about it was that I came out of it not really knowing what I thought. Not about the movie but about the the themes in the movie. Yeah. Um and I had to really sort of interrogate myself because like I I'm I'm such a sort of uh, liberal softy. I'm very uncomfortable with creeping authoritarianism, um mm-hmm. corporal punishment and any of that kind of thing. I'm deeply uncomfortable with that. What happens to Alex, uh, the Malcolm McDowell mm. character halfway through the film? Um, where he essentially undergoes a procedure that essentially neuters him. Uh, so I'm deeply uncomfortable with all of that. But at the same time, it's impossible to feel any real sympathy with Alex yeah. because his behaviour is so abhorrent in the it first is, half yeah. of the film. Um, because his idea of a good time is uh, going out, beating up homeless people and uh, gang rape. So then as the film goes on, it sort of made me ask questions about what what do you do with with this person and although he undergoes a change in behavior it's a really clever performance actually from malcolm mcdowell because mm. he undergoes a change in behavior but the, the person underneath is still that same person at the start yes who enjoys all, all those terrible things so i i, I, th- I think it's really quite brilliant uh, a piece of work in a lot yeah. of ways um, and yeah, Kubrick often leaves me a little cold. Yeah, well, I mean, Kubrick's films are unbelievably cold. There is no warmth in his films at all. They're five star films, but that doesn't mean I like them very much. But that's okay because you don't have to like everything that is good. Exactly. I understand the kind of your um, feelings about A Clockwork Orange. It's extraordinary filmmaking. It's extremely provocative. It makes you feel and think things and confront things that are real mm. difficult and sharp and cold and uncomfortable. <laughs> but like... I don't want to watch it particularly. <laughs> I've seen it once. That's enough for me, thanks. Like the shining, yeah. the shining's different because it uh, it's more like exactly like you say, it's a ghost train. But a Clockwork Orange is so hard, it, and it's a film that we're going to need to cover on the pod at some point because I think there's just there's a lot of discussion to be had, and we just don't have time right now. Um, Quite because you've not even come on to the third film you've seen at the cinema this week. Well, let's come on to that <laughs> after you've talked about what you've seen. Uh, oh, um. Yeah. yeah, this is the, it's the one we've both seen, isn't it? Um, well, um, not an enormous amount to say. I finally watched uh, Train to Busan, which Yay! I loved. It's so good. It's real, it real, wonderful? real good. Yeah, yeah. It was, do you know, um, when I sat down to watch it, I was like, this is just, this is going to be great. And mm-hmm. I just, I already know it's going to be brilliant. And I, and, yeah. and it was, and I loved it. Oh, I'll tell you what I watched, which I really enjoyed. It's on Netflix. It's uh, The Lost Daughter, which is Maggie Gyllenhaal's directorial debut. Um, and it stars Olivia Coleman and Jesse Buckley, Paul yeah. Mescal. It's on, honestly, people keep turning up in it and you're like, oh my God, it's them. Like, oh my God, it's them. <laughs> it's about a, Olivia Coleman going on a kind of working holiday to Greece and she's at this sort of little resort and kind of witnesses the family dynamics of this big group party who come to stay at the same resort. One of whom is Dakota Johnson's character who's got a little girl and it starts Olivia Coleman reflecting on her life, her family life and her decisions that she's made it's a film that touches on 
but doesn't directly confront some real taboo stuff to do with parenthood. And I know that this film has prompted quite a lot of discussion online and articles have been written and all this kind of stuff about the portrayal of parenthood. And it is, it's a film that elicits such, such sympathy towards all of the characters. But I also, there were a few moments in the film where I just felt really, really seen. (laughs) (laughs) It's so searing, so subtle. Obviously, everyone in it is extraordinarily good. It's really, really, really good. Oh, Ed Harris is in it. That's the other person I forgot. I know. Um, It's great. But all of these just like little gestures towards dynamics between characters where you Mm -hmm. see it and you're like, you've not had to rub my face in this. I get it. I just get it. It's a film that is giving voice to a really complicated but human experience. And I just think it's a really exquisite piece of filmmaking. And I really hope Maggie Gyllenhaal makes more things because she's clearly real good at it. So... (laughs) Uh, can you just remind me what it's called? It's called The Lost Daughter. The Lost Daughter. And where can I find that? Netflix. Um, it's it's a pretty crap title. Up until I saw some pieces online about it, I mm. was in no way interested, even though it's got Olivia Coleman in it and Jesse Buckley, yeah. who I would normally, anything they're in, I'm, I'm up for watching. Um, but I think I, I just had, from the poster and the title, I was mm. like, oh, this isn't going to be a film that is interesting to me at all. And actually, it's it's one of my films of the year, oh, definitely. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's um, it is you're right. It is it's it's a very sort of beige title, isn't it? It's so beige. It's based on a novel by Elena Ferranti. It feels like the title of a of a sort of literary fiction novel. Yeah, just a bit beige. like <laughs> it is. It's a beige title. I don't know what you would have called it to make it more MP- appealing, mm. but it's great and Olivia Coleman is so wonderful. Really complex character and it's interesting I spoke to my mum about it and there's a couple of moments that my mum brought up in the film as examples of Olivia Coleman being a really a really unappealing character like she's a bit of a bitch and I was like oh no I think that was her being enormously appealing and I totally get it and I really applauded her for what she did in that moment and so it's like yeah it's going to polarize it's going to it's and I think it depends on your your outlook on life but oh it's great I really really recommend um and um there's lots of like delicious food like Ed Harris brings her an octopus at one point and they eat this octopus and it's like oh yeah Greek excellent (laughs) (laughs) um uh, on Wednesday I went to see an Anatomy of a Fall at the cinema, um, which I think is the film that you saw too. It is, yeah. And I've been desperate to talk to somebody about it ever since because I was originally going to go see it with Jem, but then we got our things crossed and everything was mixed up. So I went to see it by myself in the end. And it's not a film to watch by yourself because you do come out thinking, I need... I can't make these decisions on my own. <laughs> <laughs> what was the What was the main thing that you came away wanting to talk about? Did she do it? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to try and avoid spoilers as much as mm. possible um, while talking about this. So, Anatomy of the Fall. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes this year. It's quite an extraordinary courtroom drama about a woman who may or may not have killed her husband, and the film sort of casts you in the role of the jury so it's essentially entirely up to you how you interpret the facts of the case and it's quite brilliant the way that um one one of the either the prosecution or the defense will bring something in that is then undermined by their opposite number um and constantly fluctuating between oh i think she's guilty oh i think she's not guilty and 
uh, without sort of giving anything away, the case does end. There is a verdict, but you are still left in that headspace with no concrete mm. answer uh, as to what happened. It's like we we are given insight. Um, as a viewer into certain private moments of the woman of her son but we also get to sort of see and hear things as the jury sees and hears it so there are moments that are alluded to a recording of something mm-hmm. comes up at some point but we don't get to hear it until it's played for the jury in court so yeah. then it's like ah so we then hear it and that casts you new light on everything you've seen before it is it's anatomical it's a really good title <laughs> it, yes it really is it really really is um, and if, if it sounds at all dry it it sort of is yeah yeah but i found it utterly absorbing i I was enthralled by it from start to finish it's about two hours and 40 minutes long i I looked at my watch once and that was about two hours in shit two hours this this is this is flown (laughs) well it's funny because i we came out of it feeling like it was definitely too long but when i think Mm. back on the film i don't know what i would have cut i wouldn't have cut anything because it is quite a thoughtful film you do have to work as you're watching it but it's work i was very happy to have done i would say that across the board they are the most convincingly human performances like they are so naturalistic and i believed every single second of everyone i was looking at that kid's great he's real great yeah Yeah. it's 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 so good and there were but and it made me physically angry with frustration at various points the prosecutor was so infuriating he i i I hated him (laughs) well here's here's the thing I yeah I I sort of did too in all the right ways but I yeah. when I when I say I came away from it thinking that she didn't do it I don't know if that is because I was on her side and didn't want her to have done it yes um yeah also like that the uh, defense lawyer throughout consistently avoided answering the question of whether he thought she'd done it or not yeah oh um and um, and he wasn't vincent cassell regardless of no. how many times i kept thinking oh my god it's oh no it's not it's the same no. guy it's the same guy who isn't <laughs> vincent cassell um oh yeah no i just loved it you know there were quite a lot of contemplative bits where the kid was playing the piano or something yep. like that but then it all built into the mood so it was a, an appropriate runtime really for yeah. the story but it was too long so it's really difficult <laughs> How, 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 how long is how long is too long? It overstayed its welcome slightly for me. Okay, fair enough. I think it I can, it could have done with being two hours, not two forty. Ooh, but there's but there's not forty minutes that you could lose from it. So mm. maybe maybe you're thinking it should have been a, a TV miniseries or something. <laughs> no, because I wouldn't have watched it. So I, exactly. I, I I'm happy with having watched it as a film. So <laughs> yeah, anyway, it's a uh, yeah one one of my favourite films of the year for sure. Totally agreed. It's real real good. Ed, our what we've been watching sections are getting longer and longer and longer and longer. Uh, yeah, we, ne- we need to... <laughs> Remember what the point of these, <laughs> these chats is. Um, yeah. And the point of the chat this week is Mulholland Drive. So um, we got here from my cousin Vinny um, and mm-hmm. the link was the cinematographer Peter Deming, who um, subsequently has done a lot of David Lynch's films. So Ed, would you mind taking us through a bit of housekeeping? Are uh, we doing that before the synopsis? No, Ed, would you mind doing as a synopsis? <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, I could have gotten away with not having to do a synopsis for this. <laughs> this has happened a couple of times. Oh. This is what happens when you let me drive. <laughs> so um, Ed is going to take us through a synopsis. Real good luck with this, mate. <laughs> I'm yeah, so well, sorry. Well, so I yeah, I, I, t- I texted you yesterday. Ah, um, uh, fuck, synopsis. And your response was, it's actually quite a straightforward plot, strangely. I, I, that, I think right, it is. you do it then. <laughs> so you think maybe it's like a, a sort of surface complexity. Yeah. Much like Inception, which I saw. Yeah. Yes. Again, recently, um, oh, as a sort of surface complexity, it, I did. Yeah, we're, we've. I mean, we're not going back to what we've seen. <laughs> no, recently, no, sorry. Yeah. Push on, push on. That, Don't that, look back. That also, <laughs> that also has a sort of uh, a surface complexity that hides actually a very simple plot. As I said yeah. earlier, it's a heist movie. This is the first time I've seen Mulholland drive all the way through. I had never made it past um, the audition scene. Oh, really? So oh, wow. I thought that it was a really complicated massive thing and when I sat down to watch it I was like oh my god I need to really pay attention and then I got to the end and I was like oh oh (laughs) that's oh fine (laughs) all right cool right so um you'll have an absolute breeze with this Ed I'm absolutely sure I'm sure you won't need all of the 147 seconds um of time that you've got to do the synopsis (laughs) (laughs) are you ready uh yeah sure why not three two one Go. Los Angeles, Mulholland Drive, Hollywood. Um, We've got, uh, it opens with a weird sort of dance routine scene on a purple screen. Um, What on earth's going on there? Oh, and then there's a little flash of Naomi Watts, who plays a character called Betty. We'll come to her in a moment. Um, Is she called Betty? Who can say? Uh, Then then we cut to uh, a lady in a car. Uh, played by Laura Haring. Uh, this turns out to be Rita. Rita is not her name. The car is, uh, well, actually, the car stops and a gun is pulled on her and then a, another car carrying some ch- ch- teenagers crashes into the car. So, oh, she walks away from this accident not knowing who she is. Um, and she wanders around, wanders around, wanders around and finally she finds a sort of an apartment complex to slip into an apartment to house herself in, uh, to sort of clean herself up and work out who the hell she is. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Betty, as I mentioned, played by Naomi Watts, arrives in Los Angeles with stars in her eyes. You can almost literally see the stars in her eyes. It's such a lovely scene that will come onto it. Um, <laughs> she has come to LA to be an actress. Uh, she's got an audition lined up already and she has a whole future ahead of her. Fantastic. She uh, goes and stays in her aunt's apartment that she owns there where she finds Laura Haring. Uh, who currently has no name, but then she uh, decides that she's going to call herself Rita because she sees a poster with Rita Hayworth on it. From there, they try and work out who Laura Haring actually is, who Rita is, while at the same time, Naomi Watts is trying to make it as an actor in Los Angeles. Uh, It sort of becomes a bit of a twisty noir, what's going on, what's going on, what's going on. All at the same time, there is a director, played by Justin Theroux, uh, who is trying to get a movie made and he is being strong-armed by some uh, sort of mob heavies uh, who want him to cast a particular actress uh, in the lead role of his new film. He uh, the, the phrase, this is the girl, keeps recurring. So there's that little subplot. There's also, there's a hitman there somewhere. Um, eventually, Rita and Betty go to another apartment complex 
uh, where they find a dead body. And from there, things actually really do turn into chaos. Like, uh, Rita changes her appearance drastically. She starts putting on this blonde wig. Um, then they, uh, the two of them fall into bed together and have a lovely night. Uh, but then <laughs> um, Rita's saying some stuff in her sleep, speaking some Spanish. And then they uh, go to a nightclub where things sort of fall apart a bit. And then they open a box. And then out of the box tumbles, oh, oh, well, now Betty is not Betty. Betty is this other person called Diane um, who we've heard mentioned before and oh now Rita's not Rita Rita is Camilla who is the actress that the director has been told to cast in this thing Um, not the version of Rita that we'd seen anyway it's very very complicated but Gould's going to tell us in a moment just how simple it is anyway um the film ends with these tiny, 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 and when I say tiny, old people coming through under a door. Um, they're and like terrorizing, borrowers. They're just like <laughs> borrowers, but then they get big and they're terrorizing um, uh, Betty slash Diane and uh, she shoots herself. The end. <laughs> <laughs> Simple as that, Ed. Simple as that. How long was that? It was uh, four minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I felt myself running out of time and then I was like, you know what? No, I've no, just no. burbled a lot. <laughs> I think you did a really good job, actually. It's... it's um. <sighs> So my summary is Naomi Watts' character Diane has come to Mm -hmm. Hollywood to make it as an actress and not only has failed in that, but has also lost the woman she loves and feels Mm -hmm. shamed, humiliated, is suffering from terrible depression and Mm -hmm. following a dream in which she confronts a lot of the harsh truths about herself herself decides to take her own life. Yeah, sure. Like when when you look at it from that far back, that's what the story is. Yeah. (laughs) You know, you know, you know the mistake I made. I, uh, I, I made the mistake of starting at the beginning and uh, going to the end of the movie in a sort of chronological way. Yes. Um, because that's not that's well, that's how, that's that's not the solution to this movie, which is uh, it's it's a puzzle box. It's a puzzle it to be solved. So actually, I think um, we've adequately uh, described both the puzzle and the solution. And we'll come on to all of those twists and turns. But first of all, I'd like you to take us through some housekeeping, Ed. Certainly shall. It'd be my pleasure. Uh, So Mulholland Drive from 2001. Uh, It had its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival on the 16th of May 2001. Uh, It was written and directed by David Lynch, who was very well known, very well established by this point, uh, having created the TV show Twin Peaks, also made uh, Blue Velvet with Dennis Hopper and Isabella Rossellini, Carl McLaughlin. And yeah, I think I think almost all of his, uh, his films have come from his own brain. The sort of glaring exception in uh, that I can think of immediately would be uh, his adaptation of Frank Herbert's Dune. Yes. Um, which is famously an, an ill-advised combo, uh, David Lynch and Dune. Well, it's interesting because um, he's that's the only <laughs> film that he has made that has suffered from studio interference. Mm, sure. And I think it's like, ah, you just need to let him alone. <laughs> let him alone to do his thing. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure he learned that from that experience as well. They cast Sting in it, didn't they? Stings in it, yeah. Have you seen it? <laughs> I have not, no. It's an absolute disaster. <laughs> well, maybe I've picked it for next week. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, we'd have such a giggle. <laughs> we really would. Um, the cinematography, uh, we mentioned him already, is Peter Deming. We met him last week when discussing My Cousin Vinny. Uh, just wanted to highlight another couple of his credits that I didn't mention last week. A couple of favourites I know of yours, uh, Cabin in the Woods and Drag Me to Hell. Yeah. Um, 
more recently, he was the cinematographer on The New Mutants, which I didn't like at all, and The Menu, which I liked very much. Yes, The Menu is beautiful to look at. Oh, it's great fun. Um, Yeah, it's a real giggle, yeah. really like The Menu. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, as you say, it's beautiful to look at as well. The editor is Mary Sweeney. I think this is a first for us because she's also a producer on the film. Oh, interesting. Um, Yeah, and she's been an editor for Lynch uh, going back to Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks Firewalk with me, the movie spin-off from that. Um, She was also a producer on Lost Highway and Lynch's subsequent movie, Inland Empire. Uh, Production design provided by Jack Fisk, who has gone on to do things with Paul Thomas Anderson, like There'll Be Blood and The Master. Uh, Most recently, you can see his work as a production designer on Killers of the Flower Moon, which I take it you've still not seen. No. Um, The art director of the film is Peter Jameson. Uh, who was art director on Point Break. And uh, i got to mention this because it's one of Jem's favourites, Empire Records. I don't know if you know that film. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's also worked as a production designer on uh, many things, uh, notably Robocop 2. I say notably because he worked uh, with the set director, Barbara Haberecht, on Robocop 2. Uh, she was also on uh, one of my favourite films, Sideways. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. And Miss Congeniality. I love Miss Congeniality. <laughs> uh, the it's so costume... problematic. <laughs> Miss Congeniality. <Yeah>. Problematic? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, problematic. Sorry. <laughs> sure. <laughs> the costume designer is Amy Stofsky. She worked with David Lynch on Wild at Heart. That was her first credit. But since then, she's mostly worked in TV, um, including quite high, high-end things such as The Leftovers and Pretty Little Liars. And uh, finally, the score is by Angelo Badalamenti, who he is to David Lynch what John Williams is to Steven Spielberg, I would yeah. say. All, all, all of his scores, certainly all of his scores for David Lynch, are they're just so atmospheric. Yeah. You know what I mean? There's a real sense of um, unease and and a strange beauty to them. I always found that with the, the Twin Peaks theme. It's strange and unsettling, but also really, really beautiful. <laughs> He's subsequently gone on to score the uh, the Wicker Man remake, but we won't hold that against him. <laughs> Eli Roth's Cabin Fever. Oh, my. <laughs> um <laughs> Mind you, at that point, you know, cabin fever, he couldn't mm-hmm. have known what Eli Roth would become. No. <laughs> so... <laughs> no, I'm sure the I'm sure the score for Cabin Fever is great anyway. I don't think Sure, I'm sure it. it's kind of standard horror fare. I can't remember. Um <laughs> It was made for a budget of fifteen million dollars and it took at the box office twenty point one million dollars. So but that's all right. A success. Yeah, it's done all right as a sort of low level um, mid-scale film. It received one Oscar nomination for David Lynch for Best Director. Uh, do you know who he lost out to and for what? 2000... Would this have been the Oscars 2002? Yes, that's when they would have been, yeah. Would that have been Ridley Scott? Do I mean Ridley Scott? Black Hawk Down, who's that? It was not Ridley Scott for Black Hawk Down. No. no. Um, who was it? Uh, it was Ron Howard for A Beautiful Mind. Ah, yes. Sure. Um, <laughs> Uh, So, yeah, Lynch uh, lost out um, Best Director there uh, at the Oscars, but he did get um, Best Director at the Cannes Film Festival. That was tied with Joel Cohen uh, for The Man Who Wasn't There. It was also nominated for Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival. Also, it is eighth on BFI's 100 Greatest Films of All Time list. Uh, That is just ahead of Singing in the Rain at number 10 and uh, Man with the Movie Camera at number 9 and just behind uh, Beau Travail at seven and 2001 a space odyssey at number six right well so interesting that's holland drive um a quick run through the cast i'm not going to do the whole cast because it's fucking huge yeah <laughs> um, 
So we've got uh, what I consider the sort of uh, central trio of the yeah. movie. We've got Naomi Watts as Betty Elms slash Diane Selwyn. We've got Laura Haring as Rita slash Camilla Rhodes. And we've got Justin Theroux as Adam Kesher, the director. Rounding out the cast, we've got um, David Lynch mainstay Michael J. Anderson as mm-hmm. Mr. Roke, um, who's one of my favourites. He uh, was one of the stars of one of my favourite TV series of all time, Carnival. Carnival! Which yes! cruelly cut short uh, far too early in its life. Um, I have shown it to several people and I think you were probably one of those people. I love Carnival. It is so good and he's so good in it. Isn't he just? Yeah, he's brilliant. Yeah. Oh yeah, I, I, honestly, go and get yourself a copy of Carnival if you can. I think it might be on Now TV. Um yeah, they they've got most of that HBO stuff on Now TV. Ah, okay. So yeah, actually a lot of a lot of the cast I kind of put into pairs. Is there's an interesting thing in the movie that Everybody seems to hang around in pairs. Yeah. Little twos all over the shop. So we've got at the apartment complex, and we've got Coco, who runs it. She's played by Anne Miller. And we've got Louise Bonner, this sort of strange lady who sort of hangs around and says ominous things, played by Lee Grant. Um, mm. Anne Miller, I think, is an interesting piece of casting. She is very much a golden age of Hollywood type person who hadn't done very much in quite a long time she certainly hadn't made a film in quite a long time before this and i think i think uh, there are a few people in this where david lynch is going into golden age of hollywood yeah uh, to pull people out and the casting of her in that role is in itself a comment on hollywood yes it, it's very very clever also i aspire to coco's look <laughs> <laughs> this is what i want to look like sure. when i'm old <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, so that was uh, that was Anne Miller's final film role as well. Um, oh. We've also got another pairing, uh, Dan and Herb. They are the two chaps who have a sort of ominous conversation at the diner, Winkies. Yes. Um, they're played by Patrick Fischler, plays Dan, and uh, Michael Cook plays Herb. Then we've got Irene and her companion. Um, yes. These are the people who Betty meets on her plane to uh, to Los Angeles, and they're the people who come back ominously as tiny little borrower folk. At yeah, the yeah, end. yeah. Um, they're played by Gian Bates and Dan Birnbaum. We've got a very small role uh, for Robert Forster, uh, who plays De- Detective McKnight at the start. He is there in a little pair with Brent, Brent Briscoe as Detective Domgard. Then we've got these wonderful sort of mobster figures, Dan Hedaya and uh, Angelo Badlamenti himself, the composer. Yeah. Playing Vincenzo Castelli, uh, Castellani and Luigi Castellani. We've got uh, Chad Everett as the frankly disgusting Jimmy Katz, also known as Woody Katz, in the audition <laughs> scene. Uh, I would sort of put him in a pair with uh, James Caron, who plays Wally Brown, the sort of mm. producer in that scene. Yeah. Billy Ray Cyrus makes a little cameo as uh, Clean Jean, the pool cleaner. Is that Billy Ray Cyrus? Billy Ray Cyrus, yeah, whose uh, acting is about as authentic as his music. Um, (laughs) Just... Just appalling, but because of the style of of David Lynch and the style of the movie, it sort of works. The scene at the Mm. house with the pink paint, that is, it's entirely appropriate. It fits sort of um, aesthetically with what that represents and what that's all about. I absolutely agree. I don't Um, know if Billy Ray Cyrus Mm. was entirely uh, uh, like in on it. (laughs) No, No, Billy Ray Cyrus, I'm fairly sure, is doing his best acting. Um, (laughs) And I'm sure David's just there going... Yeah, that's nice. That's nice, Billy Ray. Because <laughs> I don't know if anybody's ever heard David Lynch interviewed. He does kind of talk a bit like that. He's got this very soft kind of voice. Um, I put him in a little pair with Laurie Herring, who plays Lorraine Kessler, uh, the wife of Adam, the director. Yeah, I put them in a little pair because they're having an, an affair. And then we've got a couple of guys who sort of just aren't really in a pair. Um, 
we've got Mark Pellegrino, who plays Joe the Hitman, who sort of flits between several different sort of pairings. It shows mm. up a few times. And then we've got the marvellously named Lafayette Montgomery, who plays the cowboy. His name is Lafayette <laughs> Montgomery? Um, yeah, not anymore, bizarrely enough. He now goes by Monty Montgomery, but he's credited no. in this as Lafayette Montgomery, which I think is a much better name. Have we discussed putting people's actual names in <laughs> the Spice of Lovejoy Hall of Fame? I, I don't think we have, no. Because, I, I mean... <laughs> I, I would be open to that. <laughs> I'd be open to putting Lafayette Montgomery in the Spice of Lovejoy Hall of Fame. That's amazing. I, yeah, I think it's a wonderful name. Yeah, and that's that's really... There, there are so many other people in this movie, but I, mm. that's all of the cast that I want to highlight, really. Yeah, like you say, like the, a lot of the characters and the pairings... There are sort of each one gets either like one or maybe two or three little like vignettes, and that's yes. all there is. Like um, the character Dan and the bloke he's with at Winky's Diner, they only have that one scene, and then I know Dan pops up again later, but it's not. Yeah, but just as a sort of vision, doesn't he? The the whole of that first section, because of because it's a David Lynch film. I don't know about mm. you, but I was like desperately trying to remember every i was like trying to sear every image into my brain to be yes. like this is going to be of import <laughs> i need to remember well, all of this <laughs> yeah. and it's well, like think... oh fuck he doesn't come back again <laughs> <laughs> well i think i think he sort of invites you to do that i think yeah. this might be a, a good moment before we sort of dive into the film properly i think this is probably a good moment to uh, look at david lynch's clues yeah so when the dvd was released david lynch released as a part of that his 10 clues to unlocking this thriller. So we're just going to run through those quite quickly. Um, yes. So number one, he says, pay particular attention in the beginning of the film. At least two clues are revealed before the credits. Um, so number two, notice appearances of the red lampshade. Number three, can you hear the title of the film that Adam Kesher is auditioning actresses for? Is it mentioned again? Number four, an accident is a terrible event. Notice the location of the accident. Number five, who gives a key and why? Number six, Notice the robe, the ashtray, the coffee cup. Number seven, what is felt, realised and gathered at the Club Silencio? Number eight, did talent alone help Camilla? Number nine, note the occurrences surrounding the man behind Winkies. And number ten, where is Aunt Ruth? Ba-ba-ba-ba! Ba-ba-ba-ba! It's really interesting because I'd watched it by the time you sent this through. So it did make me on my second watch go, okay, no, I will, I will. Um, and mm-hmm. some of these, I still don't get it. Oh, yeah. No, some of them I, I absolutely don't. I think, well, I don't think they're red herrings, but I don't think, I don't think they're necessary. Like some, some of them I think are kind of helpful in un- in unlocking some things. But I think what, what that list is more than anything else is an invitation down the rabbit hole. Yes. It's saying, notice the red lampshade. And you go, okay, I have to look at the red lampshade. <laughs> yeah. It's key. Oh, Several people give keys at several different points in this movie. There are so many keys. Notice the coffee cup. Which one? There are so many. <laughs> ashtrays. Ashtrays. And everybody is wearing uh, robes or dressing gowns. As also, um, the um, an accident is a terrible event. Notice the location of the accident. Like what? That dark road. It's, it's more Holland Drive, isn't it? It is more Holland Drive. But I it thought t- I was like, awesome. okay, um, I need to notice exactly on which bit of more mm-hmm. like exactly where absolutely yeah. is it's it's an invitation and it's a sl- i think it's a little bit of a wink and a nod i think he's being th- a bit yeah. silly <laughs> i think i think he's i think he's making mischief yeah he is <laughs> I, think, he absolutely I think he's is. absolutely making mischief. and if anybody um, yeah. fancies um a real trip down the rabbit hole a little bit like i was talking about last time the um 
the documentary Room 237. If you want to mm. go down a kind of Room 237 documentary route with this, just Google Mulholland Drive Explained. <laughs> I can and only imagine will... what you'd find. Ah, oh, the essays that have been written about this. It's yeah. extraordinary. I'm less interested in trying to pick apart every tiny, tiny, tiny little <laughs> thing because we will be here forever, Ed. We will. So can you remember like what was the first David Lynch film that you saw? Like what was your first encounter? And are you a fan? Do you like him? Um, well, so my parents were both big fans of Twin Peaks. And I remember one of like my sort of strongest memories from early childhood. And this is like properly early childhood, I think. Uh, so Twin Peaks first broadcast in 1990. So yeah, when my parents were watching it, I would have been sort of five, six. And it was quite kind of formative on me in in those ways. Like the one of the things I was talking about, that theme tune, does take me back to a very specific mm. sort of time and a feeling, actually a feeling that I had in my childhood. Mm. So there was that. And then some years later, I was probably about 14, I guess, when when my old man sat me down and said, all right, you're watching a Razorhead. <laughs> God bless <laughs> your like dad, honestly. My full introduction to David Lynch. <laughs> my God. It was yeah, quite quite formative on my uh, my thoughts on, on cinema. Yeah, yeah of course um, it was. I mean, they, it wasn't the only thing that my, my dad sat me down to watch in, in a similar sort of way. Uh, that was also my experience of watching The Wicker Man and Don't Look Now, I which mean... he, he tried to show me as he originally saw as a double bill because they were first... Um, released like Wicker Man was the B movie on Don't Look Now. Yes, um, I mean and so that's how he watched them first. Just such respect for your dad for doing that. <laughs> it's just so it's wonderful, formative, absolutely formative. And yeah, I think I first encountered Mulholland Drive. I think I first watched it when I was doing A level media studies. So that would have been not long after it came out, probably about two thousand and two. I've seen it, I think, once subsequently. Uh, are you generally speaking a David Lynch fan? Oh yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I mean Blue Velvet, I think is just brilliant it's so difficult it's to watch so it's so difficult oh it's yeah yeah well i mean we, we had that um, <laughs> yeah. trip to the prince charles didn't we too? <laughs> yeah well we went to the prince charles to watch a double bill of blue velvet and mulholland drive and i found right. blue velvet such hard going i couldn't face watching mulholland <laughs> drive so we went and had a really lovely tie meal instead yeah we did and <laughs> i mean was... needless to say mulholland drive is um it, it's an easier watch yeah i mean uh, I to say. be fair i've I've seen Blue Velvet and the TV series of Twin Peaks and Mulholland Drive. I haven't seen any of the others. I am, okay. uh, I've got the DVD box set waiting for me to kind of work my oh, way gently through. I I'll actually, I'm going to be watching Lost Highway and Inland Empire in the next couple of weeks for the film course I'm doing anyway. So cool. um, I can't wait to hear what you think of Inland Empire. I know, it's, I'm really looking forward. It's like Mulholland Drive on crack. <laughs> 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 Mulholland Drive when I got to the end and had a complete picture mm -hmm. it was like we were talking about last time with um, films with twists and how oh, yeah. I think with Mulholland Drive the first time watching it through this time I was frustrated because I wanted to get to the end of it so that I had all the information so that I could then mm. start doing the puzzle it's almost yes. like it's like I was trying to do a jigsaw but with, with only half the pieces up until the point mm -hmm. that I got to the end and then I was like yeah. okay I can actually do this now or like trying to do a jigsaw but without a picture for guidance yeah yeah i'm like just trying to sort of find your way through it exactly in a way i'm slightly tempted to just start at the beginning of david lynch's filmography and just work my way through them well i find david lynch really interesting as a character i think because of the sort of ferocity of his independence as a filmmaker whatever you make of his films on their own i have mm. just got so much respect 
for what they represent in the world of filmmaking now and, and what it means to be so independent. And um, I also, just from everything that I've seen about him, from everything I've read about him, apparently he is just the nicest guy in the world. He's just really <laughs> lovely. Yeah. I'm slightly concerned that as I begin to work my way through the rest of his films, I'm slightly mm. concerned that my opinion of the films themselves in their own right will be coloured by how desperately I want to love them. Sure. Because I just, it would really break my heart if I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I understand that feeling. Yeah, I have, I, have, I have similar feelings, I think. I want to be a David Lynch fan. I want to get it. I want to, I want to be on board with these films. And to be fair, I have liked all of the ones that I've seen. So, um, yeah, he was offered The Return of the Jedi to direct. Oh, wow. And turned it down. And this is a quote from him, which I just love. He says, next door to zero interest um, in directing it, <laughs> arguing that Lucas should direct the film himself as the movie should reflect his own vision, not Lynch's. Um, I read it, I think, Justin through talking about him being a, an instinctual filmmaker. Yeah, so he just sort of goes with it, goes with the flow. And I've heard... Um, Badalamenti talking about what it's like to compose for him, and he'll just right. sort of he'll like have the movie th- uh, the movie there on the screen, and Lynch will just be given these most sort of esoteric directions. <laughs> Badalamenti will just sort of score it there in real time to the movie. That's like kind of like live uh, pianists and organists with um, silent film. I want to know what you think about whether Mulholland Drive, um, do we need to pick this film apart in order to enjoy it properly? I'm not sure that it will reward casual viewing. I think I, I, I don't know that there's much that you would get out of this movie if you're not prepared to sort of work for it. It's a bit of an escape room of a film. Like yeah. you kind of, you go through not knowing what's going on, picking up clues, trying to retain the information and work out and like, you have to go down some dead ends and then and everything. And then at the end, it's all the more satisfying when you feel like you've got it. Yes. Yeah. And then when you can watch it, when you watch it subsequently, I, I watched it twice. I could have done with watching it three or four times, if I'm honest. Oh, really? Um, I feel like there is a lot to uh, mine out of it if if you were minded to. Yes. Um, and there's a lot to dig into. There is a lot. And I think David Lynch is a big fan of presenting a kind of a series of images and things, but they are provocations to you. While I do believe that some of the things in the film are deliberately planted to lead you to a specific conclusion, I think so much of it is to do with allowing you to read into it what you want to, what what it means to you. So, okay, Ed. <laughs> We've uh, we've dilly dallied around it for long enough, haven't we? What's this? What's it about? What's this film about? What's this film about? Then? What, what's, what is it about? It's well, what's it about to you? I guess, as so many films about Hollywood are, it's about the sort of corruptive and corrosive uh, aspect of that world, and uh, yeah, of, of that world, of the sort of of the whole kind of film business and the way it sort of eats people up because yeah here you've got betty uh who arrives as i said with stars in her eyes mm. and it that that opening scene where she that opening scene where she arrives is so it's so hallmark mm. it's so sort of pitch postcard and like like deliberately so and sort of exaggeratedly so like in yeah. in the whole dialogue exchange between her and this lady she's met on the plane through to um everything that sort of happens in that scene as well. Mm. So it's it, like she's had this wonderful experience with this old couple on the plane who are then just sort of wishing her all the best and they're going to see her on the big screen. And she, as I say, she's literally got st- 
stars in her eyes. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they're like, oh no, what's happened to my bags? Like, oh, has somebody nicked her bags? No, there's a nice friendly taxi man. It's already putting her, her cases into his taxi. And so like her introduction to LA is so, it's so sort of over the top bright and sparky and oh my goodness, the the world is wonderful. And you very gradually get a sort of a, a, a coming to reality uh, through Betty up until uh, that, that sort of uh, in, in the real world bit in that sort of final quarter of the movie or final fifth of the movie. Well, it's actually, it's kind of, it's um, the final, it's the final half hour, isn't it? Um, yeah. Because it's a two and a half hour runtime, but two hours of that is, I mean, I'm going to call it the dream section. Yeah, and that, this, I think there are other interpretations of it. Yeah, absolutely. Out there, but um, this, I yeah, this is the interpretation that I'm most on board with. Certainly. I think it kind of, I wanted to protect my first viewing all the way through from any theory so that I could just yep. look at it and see what I thought of it as a piece of filmmaking. And at the end... I felt extremely clearly about what I thought the film was about. And it actually, I found it very moving. Some of it was a bit familiar. Yeah. You know, um, we are two people who have been through that kind of, that process of auditioning and all of that stuff. And some of it, I was like, some of it felt very uncomfortable. And um, and to me, it feels quite clear that everything that we see Betty doing is mm-hmm. a representation of what Diane thought coming to Hollywood would be for her. Um, yes. And in the dream version, you know, when when she goes for an initial interview, she can take as long as she wants. There's all these people there. It goes so amazingly. And it's like she's... the th- One of the things that exists in both worlds, both the dream world and the real world, is this slight kind of conspiracy theory about how Hollywood works, um, mm-hmm. that power isn't in the hands of the artists. It's in the hands of these sort of mysterious suits in dark rooms with complicated and like we're and you know even the people who are part of the system don't understand the system um it's these you know people have to make assumptions and it's all whispers and weirdness and that exists in both worlds um except even the people that you imagine the power resides with aren't really in control the director has no control um even the 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 producer that yeah um, in that scene with the audition yes when the agent is taken her out She's like, yeah, Wally's finished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Finished for twenty years. Yeah, yeah. He's a joke. But it's get you to meet some other people. And in that audition scene, it's like Diane's dream of what her kind of career looks like is that she is so powerful, her talent is so powerful that she can overcome the system. Because in that world, that role is fixed for someone else. But she has blown their socks off to such an extent that she's going to get the part because her talent is so enormous. When actually the truth of the situation is that she came to Hollywood and has had a couple of bit parts as the result of someone else with influence. But that person is playing the rules of this game. And it's like talent doesn't matter. Skill doesn't matter. None of that stuff matters. And that is kind of like a horn. It's like, it's a bit, it's a conspiracy theory, but it is sort of true. (laughs) It is. It is. It's absolutely true. It's not as, um, yeah, I don't think it's as calculated as the conspiracy theory makes out. Yeah. So I, I can't remember who said it, but there's this myth that the business is cruel. It's not. The business is indifferent. Yes. Yeah. It would be much, much easier to believe that the business had it in for you. Well, this is the cruelest thing is, is uh, you know, in the dream, in, in Diane's dream, Betty really matters because not only does she really matter in terms of her skill as an actor, but also she immediately 
becomes the center of this sort of sleuthy investigative thing and she's she's really important i mean really i i do sort of have a, a belief that the majority of conspiracy theories are not created by but certainly perpetuated and escalated by people who just can't bear the thought that they don't matter yes it just it's, yes, it's I think that's absolutely true it's like you can't you know it has to be the case that the government are listening to your phone calls because you matter it's like no no one would do that because you're just some person who lives in a cul-de-sac <laughs> you know you're not that important you're not important <laughs> um everybody comes to hollywood with a dream of one day being important the, f- the whole film through all of the little all the little bits about what everything represents like for, for me the um the, uh, irene and her companion Mm-hmm. Um, to me, they are representative of the expectations of the family and friends of Diane. So she's yeah. come kind of from the sticks to Hollywood. And um, I don't know about you, but I certainly have experienced that kind of that feeling of going home for Christmas and people saying like, oh, so what have you been up to when when we see your name in lights? You know, or that kind of loving, supportive pressure. <laughs> to yes. succeed um and a uh, possibly a definition of success that doesn't match up with what the reality of the the world is you know uh, you know diane has that desperate that slightly hysterical desperation to get away from her kind of small town to, to where she has been a big fish <laughs> winning her jitterbug yeah. competition and suddenly but then she finds herself in hollywood where she's not even a small fish she's like flotsam <laughs> yes she's like she's krill she is she's krill (laughs) swallowed up on mass hollywood krill um the process of that dream sequence which is the first two hours of the film is her kind of confronting and realizing and kind of taking the lid off the box of Mm -hmm. everything that she's been repressing about the expectations of the people back home for what her success should look like and and the fact that it hasn't done that and it's um it's fucking heartbreaking i found it real difficult <laughs> it's <laughs> quite know. near the knuckle for anybody who's uh, been through the business in, been in through the way. business in in any way you know if you've been through the and the, the idea that you might get to go to an audition and have all of those people the reality of an audition is that it's probably an, a slightly awkward cameraman um, and someone, and you get five minutes, if that, and it's like oh, brutal. It's so brutal. It's an, it's an interesting scene that audition because it's in one way, like you're describing, there is a sort of idealized thing there, but also it's actually it's really horrible. It's really sinister. Like he, um, Woody, Woody Katz, <gasps> so horrible. When he he, he says, um, I think I want to do this one real close, like with that other girl. What's her name? The one with the dark hair. You just get this idea of this procession of young actresses going through the door to getting groped get felt up by this old man well also um, he's he has that line about um because the director says oh and don't what does he said like don't rush that line again mm-hmm. and he's like hey acting is reacting it's because they all do it the same which is why i'm not changing the way i'm doing it it's because yeah. they all do it this way and naomi watts betty comes in and does it a different way but it's also i mean for me also the film is about a woman who has come to hollywood with these dreams and she kind of betty particularly when we first meet her she's very infant she's got that cardigan that doesn't that, that doesn't really fit her it's like this i've infantilized childish naivety this twinkliness yeah. um it's how hollywood chews up and spits out these women <laughs> i mean i think it's a me too film for certain um before the me too movement it's about mm-hmm. the kind of um 
sexualization and the using of women in the Hollywood system in that way. Um, and Naomi Watts, yeah, okay, she wows them in the interview, but even in her dream, it's by compromising. And you can see in that, it, she if, it, at first she's really trying to pull away and then she's like, fine, I'm going to do it. And she decides yeah. to do it. Yeah, she, yeah, he, because he, he, he takes his hand and it, it hovers um, just, just over her bum. And in that moment, she decides to kind of yield to the system and yield and, and give them give him what he wants give them what they want it's yeah it's a it's a great scene that and when you compare it to the previous time that you've heard that dialogue when she's running through the lines yeah with uh, with rita <laughs> it's such a contrast it is it's really lovely to see that same dialogue play out twice in twice. completely different ways i love um laura harring's um bad acting acting <laughs> oh isn't it great she's so good <laughs> doesn't she do great great bad acting she yeah. does yeah she's really good um, that's not easy to do, like intentional bad acting. I-, I wonder if maybe, I don't know, our kind of reaction to the film might be slightly different to someone who hasn't ever had to do an audition. <laughs> uh, quite possibly, yeah. I-, I imagine it probably would do. It went straight to a special place in my chest, a lot of that, mm. a lot of the kind of business of being an actor stuff. Yeah, I think I think the film's sort of main audience is probably people with a connection to the business in some way yeah i think hollywood likes to talk about itself likes to make movies about itself but i also i would argue that this is not this is not made by a hollywood this is not a hollywood person talking about itself this is an outsider making a comment on hollywood but at the same time he he is as much as david lynch is an outsider he is he is close enough he's still part of hollywood he's still part of that system and it, it's very much informed by first-hand knowledge of yeah. which makes it even more chilling i think <laughs> oh yeah yeah it's it yeah it's a savage portrait really mm. of, of hollywood just looking at um the david lynch's 10 clues to unlocking this thriller so if we look at number one pay particular attention in the beginning of the film at least two clues revealed before the credits um yeah what do you what do you interpret that to be does it say at least two clues yes at least two clues (laughs) i think he's just he's being naughty like immediately he's he's being mischievous there (laughs) there might be more who knows but there are at least two (laughs) (laughs) so um like one of them, you before the credits, you get just a very brief shot of there's somebody asleep in bed. Like immediately, oh, this is a dream. You know what I mean? I think the other of the two clues that he's referring to. So it's this dance routine mm-hmm. um, on this purple background. It's very strange. It is really strange. Um, sort of swing dancing. It looks in no way, shape or form like any of the rest of the film. It's completely incongruous completely incongruous and it's sort of like that sort of hollywood as a kind of party town and you get a little flash up of betty all sort of bathed in light mm-hmm. stars in her eyes this is the dream that she's having of hollywood this hollywood party town with her sort of bathed in light and whole future ahead of her and this is the reality of she's asleep in a bed mm-hmm. i think those i think those are the two clues that he's referring he's, to i That's completely I agree do. with you i read something slightly different into the dancing okay i read that as her winning her jitterbug competition oh Yes. Yeah, fair enough. And and that's what makes me think that Irene and her unnamed companion represent her family or the people from her small town because she's it's like she's being bathed in light and they're either side of her. It's the glory of her small town success and then contrasted to the reality of her Hollywood situation which is this like woozy 
grimy like a bit dirty gritty very depressive and you know um rita keeps saying like i just need to sleep i just need to sleep and then she wakes up and says i thought if i went to sleep it would be better and to me that is just that is a depressive loop that's a depressive state it's very potent (laughs) yeah and of course we we get this image of woman in bed or Mm. person in bed uh several times so it's you get it here uh and then later on when they find the corpse yes and then later on from that when Betty wakes up as Diane uh, in exactly the same position as the corpse yeah uh, with the the red bedsheet from this mm. opening shot uh, and then again of course at the end uh, she's on the bed when she kills herself yes <sighs> um I can't honestly hand on heart say that I retained that information the whole way through the film <laughs> I, as I was watching it I was like this is important. It's really important to try and remember, remember, remember the opening. And then I got to the end. But on second watch, I was like, ah. But again, it's one of those things where uh, because I knew that there would be clues, I was desperately looking out for them. But I don't know that I would necessarily. Maybe, maybe that's why when I first watched it, probably in about 2002, 2003, when I was in my early teens, I had mm. no idea what was going on. <laughs> I was probably a bit frustrated by it. Um, yeah, I think when I first saw it, I didn't really know what was going on, but I quite just sort of liked that. Yes. I'm always, I've always been quite happy to just sort of let a movie happen and me to not really fully understand what's going on. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, to let it wash on over you. at all, no. <laughs> what's going on? Moving on to number two in his clues to unlock the thriller. The appearances mm-hmm. of the red lampshade. Right. So the second time through, I did note the appearances of the red lampshade, but I don't mm-hmm. know what it means. <laughs> Still. So I think the red red lampshade, I think, popped up twice. There's a phone ringing next to it. That was Diane's phone. Yes. Why? You know, when um, the first time we see the red lamp, we don't see the phone being answered. But I can't remember why the phone is ringing. It's that there's like a chain. There's a chain of phone calls. So I think that phone call comes from the the board meeting where they're all there, uh, the director and director's agent. There's the two go-betweens from the studio. And then there's these two uh, mob guys played by Dan Hedaya and Angelo Badalamenti. And yeah, when that turns out to be a no, when they, they sort of, this is the girl conversation happens, where they bring in uh, a picture of the girl that they want the director to cast. And he's like, no, that's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. He's very, very firm with them. And then I think they phone Mr. Roke. No, the guy. Guy, his manager goes in. His, his manager, ah, his manager goes in. That's right. And Mr. Roke like, barely says anything, but he and he is like, "What do you think I should do?" And it's like, "I guess I should close down production." Yes, I'm going to close down production. In that case, I think it's a different time that we see Mr. Roke. I think it's an, a slightly earlier time. I think because uh, Mr. Roke gets a phone call. Yes, and he's talking into the phone, and it's the the girl's still missing. And I think. A phone call subsequently is placed that is then to the phone next to the red lampshade. Right. So I think. What's that about? Beats me. <laughs> I read a theory somewhere, and I don't quite get how this is the case, but I read a theory that that is an, imp- an implication that Diane is working as a call girl. Interesting. I... But I can't quite get my head around how that is the case. No, me neither. I th- the, the implication being that at the beginning, so when Rita is being driven along, she's being taken up to a house in the Hollywood Hills to be a call girl and then because she goes missing they need a replacement but i i uh, that's not my interpretation that's someone else's yeah i don't i don't know about the call girl aspect but yeah possibly girls still missing we need a replacement it certainly would fit into that world but i feel like that maybe is filling in a gap with very glittery polyfiller 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a very odd metaphor. Sorry. I, I, I Yeah, very strange. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I've had too much coffee. I think David Lynch is very happy for people to do that. I think he's very, yes. very happy for people to fill in the gaps in whatever way they want. And from what I've heard, he takes great pleasure in people's mad theories yeah. about his films. Which brings me um, joy. It kind of, was it last episode when I was wanging on about um, f- films being a gift? <laughs> Yes. God, clearly must have been on something that week. I was all full. I was all loved up with the whole process <laughs> of filmmaking. But um, that thing about like so David Lynch's gift to us in the, this film is a is like a it's like a really good puzzle. It's a, a thing that we can kind of collectively start picking apart together and get really into. And he's just yeah. like, great, yeah, go for it. <laughs> And there's a sort of, I think a sort of a, a twinkle and a mischief and a kind of... Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> just want to make this thing, put it into the world and see what people do with it. Well, number three on the list is, can you hear the title of the film that Adam Kesher is auditioning actresses for? Is it mentioned again? I'm going to answer the first part of that, no. And so the second part of that goes, ah, probably, but I don't know when. Okay, so it's called The Sylvia North Story and it is mentioned a few times, both in the dream world and the real world. So I think in the dream right. world, The Sylvia North Story is the film that that Betty is auditioning to be in and in the real world the Sylvia North story is the film that she desperately wanted to get the lead role for but didn't and Camilla got it and that's how they met now those two things in and of themselves I'm like yeah okay fine a film but I I mean I don't I don't know in terms of this unlocking the thriller that's a point of interest that connects the two worlds but it's not like the second time I heard the Sylvia North story I was like oh my god I understand (laughs) you know yeah I don't think it's necessarily a huge revelation it's just another piece of the puzzle isn't it yeah 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 that's interesting okay cool number four an accident is Mm -hmm. a terrible event notice the location of the accident so Mulholland Drive like you say I don't know what else he wants us to look at there well I guess in the real version when the limo stops that is the point where she is taken from the limo and up to the engagement party which is kind of like that's true the final thing that tips her over into a depression I suppose is this Mm -hmm. engagement party where she her lover is engaged to another man but also it's the humiliation that she experiences at that party of everybody else feeling like this kind of Hollywood elite and she's there as a kind of failed actor and it's all a bit Mm. awful yeah and Camilla's sort of brought her there isn't she yeah Yeah. in the in the dream in the dream version of the world Rita who is played by Camilla about to be assassinated is she I don't really know the car is stopped and a gun's pulled on her I don't really know what's supposed what in in the logic of that narrative I don't know what was going to happen to her (laughs) Um, (laughs) but uh, you know that is the site of the accident that's so it's kind of a bad thing happening to i mean mulholland drive the actual mulholland drive in actual hollywood it is one of the most kind of elite addresses that you can have like i think jack nicholson has lived there for most of his career and like it's up in the hollywood hills it's very prestigious elite big mansions um and when it was built when hollywood was being developed in the kind of early part of the 20th century it was Mm. you know it was going to be one of the most important roads and along that road like you can see all of the big landmarks like you can see the hollywood sign and see all this stuff so it is like a really important feature of the geography of la and hollywood yeah it's got that incredible view yes that looks out over the entire city and Mm. i i just I, I love those shots. Yeah. Yeah, that just pan over the entire city in, in darkness of night with just the sort of twinkling lights everywhere. There's sort of a, a romantic aspect to that, but also it's quite sort of unsettling, unnerving. You don't know what's down there, you don't know what's going on down there as you sort of move 
from that, particularly uh, near the start where Rita's trying to make her way to find somewhere safe to be. And there's just like this people coming out of doorways and there's just everything's a little bit sinister down there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those views, views over the city, it sort of emphasises how vast it is, but also makes it look kind of far away and little and manageable it's kind of a weird kind of dichotomy mm. about it from those those views yeah but i guess also down there is where betty is that's where she's living that's where she's yeah. existing and this is the view of her from where she wants to be yes yeah up in the sort of hollywood elite yeah um yeah she's this actual tiny tiny little piece of krill um, she, yeah <laughs> a tiny piece of krill floating around it's really uh, it's really depressing <laughs> It's really upsetting. And then she gets invited up there and it's all a bit horrid up there. It is a bit horrid. It's um it's again it's this system. It's a system that she has no control over. The people who she thinks ought to have control over it have no control over it. You know, the director is being strong-armed to cast someone he doesn't want to cast. It's kind of, I suppose, in a way, that removal of responsibility and removal of agency is a coping strategy for Diane, as played by Naomi Watts in the kind of real world, quote-unquote. It's a way for her to reconcile the place she's at in her life. But And it is also so twisty-turny and complicated. It's almost like the best she can do to explain the situation to us, the viewer, is to show her this dream, because the, the dream is the conspiracy theory which doesn't quite hang together and there are links that you don't quite get but it's like that's the best you can do why do you think Camilla invites her up there to the party like this is after they've they've been together and had a breakup haven't they yeah so I think it's certainly one of the interpretations they've had a love affair but it's been secret and Camilla has used what little influence she has to help get Diane some roles in some of her films out of a sense of sort of obligation maybe. Basically Camilla is playing the game. She's playing the game of being sexually available to the people who are going to give her a leg up basically. Why has she invited Diane there to witness that? Is it her way of saying do you really want this? Oh interesting my instinct would be that it's actually Camilla can only help her so far. It's like Camilla has um, gotten her into the room and it's now Mm. Diane's responsibility to get noticed in that room and actually what she's doing is she's being a bit Mm. tragic at the dinner party she's not being very charismatic or funny or interesting she isn't being the kind of person that they are going to want to employ and she says um while she's talking to coco she says like yeah the director didn't like me very much and i think being invited to that party is camilla trying again to get diane into the room so she can make something of herself but she's refusing to play the game or she doesn't get it and of course in in the dream in that audition Mm. that is what she does yes she she does play the game she yeah. does let these people use her yes. sexually so bleak so so bleak <laughs> okay number five who gives a key and why <laughs> oh god there are so many keys so many bloody keys so the first key coco near the start gives uh, yes. betty a key to the apartment uh, betty and rita find a key a very strange shaped key oh the blue key in her handbag yeah which unlocks that odd box so the box represents the transfer to the real world from the dream yeah that that is the point where she wakes up isn't it from this they unlock the box and awake again uh then there's another key given when diane meets uh the hitman yes and he gives her 
a blue key, a sort of blue Yale key. Yeah. And she's like, what is it open? And he just laughs. I presume that's the key that we're talking about here, but I've got no idea. Which we see, actually. We see that key a couple of times on the coffee table. Yes. Diane's apartment. Now, this is never made explicit, but he's a hitman mm-hmm. and Diane is giving yeah. him some money and the headshot of Camilla. So presumably mm-hmm. she is paying to have Camilla killed. That's the implication. That's the implication. Think, yeah. So the blue key that the hitman gives to Diane in the diner is basically when that key appears back in her life on her coffee table Mm -hmm. that means that the deed has been done that's right camilla has been killed so i mean to me the the blue key and the blue box that it opens in the dream world is to do with confronting the truth it's to do with diane coming to terms with her current situation which is she's failed and she's had someone she's had the woman she loves killed and she's been killed and there's no going back on that so that's what that's all about i think Uh (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. You, you're really helping me. You're doing so much better than I am at, at, at putting these pieces together and, and solving this riddle. I've been helped yeah. by people on the internet, though. Some of this stuff uh, I was like, what? Like, to be honest, I still don't get the red lamp thing. <laughs> I still don't get it. <laughs> well, also, um, number six is notice the robe, the ashtray, the coffee cup. Again, no idea. Okay. Well, there are, there are so many coffee cups. Um <laughs> And there are so many, there are a few ashtrays, uh, including there's one next to the phone with the red lamp. Um, And people wear robes, or as we would call them, dressing gowns, several times throughout. Yes. Um, I think the time he's talking about is there is a moment, it's it's in the real world, not in the dream world, Mm -hmm. where Diane has made herself a coffee. And, the sink, and she's had a sort of vision of Camilla, a sort of hallucination of Camilla next to her. And then she turns and walks away carrying the coffee cup. Uh, she's in a uh, grey dressing gown mm-hmm. and she goes into the living room and as she peers over the sofa in the living room, Camilla's there naked on the sofa. Yeah. And the next thing it jumps to, the coffee cup's disappeared, uh, the dressing gown has disappeared and Diane climbs on top of her. I think that's the moment that it's talking about because then it pans to, I think, an ashtray on the coffee table. Okay. And I, I, I don't know specifically what about that he wants us to take notice of other than I think the answer to a lot of these is to do with what's real and what's not real. It's actually these clues are just pointing you to moments where you need to ask yourself, is this real? Is this not real? Right. Okay. Because there's there's one coming up about the Silencio nightclub. Yes. Uh, but that's that's the bit that I think it's talking about. I think think that the basically everything that happens in the real world and i do think that it's a very clear switch so i think as soon as diane wakes up in the real world i think everything that we see from that point onwards actually happened and i think that we are flipping back in time so i i think that everything that happens to do with um camilla at the engagement party all of that stuff i think that happened three weeks ago yes because the neighbor that she switched apartments with comes over and says come on diane it's been three weeks since we switched apartments i want to get i want my lamp and my plates so i think she's made that switch three weeks ago and i think that everything that happens basically whenever naomi watts is wearing that gray dressing gown that's all happening on the day that she wakes up from in the red bed and to the point where she shoots herself so she kind of she wakes up goes and makes herself a cup of coffee the neighbor comes over and takes away her plates i think that is the day that the that the blue key turns up and i think she kills herself Mm. upon the realization that that Camilla is dead. I think. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think you're probably right. So, I mean, what that's got to do with an ashtray and a coffee cup, I've got no idea. But that's what I think. I think I think the ashtray and the coffee cup and the robe. It's just all signifying. Look at this moment, rather than pay attention to those specific items. Ah, I see. I think. Yeah. Okchae That feels yeah, like one of the che- is... that feels like one of the cheekiest 
prompts from David Lynch. It's like, <laughs> well, it, it absolutely is because there are so many, as I say, coffee cups and and robes and uh, well, because also there is there is another significant robe, and it's the red robe with the black lapels that Rita yeah. wears in the dream. So I was like, yeah. I was watching it so hard. I was like, look at the robe, look at it. <laughs> Nothing's happened. Yeah, I, I, yeah I, I, don't, I don't think it's the 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 object itself does or has any intrinsic meaning. <laughs> um, it's it's more pay attention now. Yeah. Okay. Look at look at what's happening now. I, I think that's me. Um, what it is what it's about. Madly googling the history of the dressing gown. It's like, what does it mean? Uh, it goes back to ancient Mesopotamia. <laughs> 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 It's a good moment because it's number seven on the list. But yeah, let's talk about Club Silencio. Right. So Club Silencio. This is interesting. So after Rita and Betty first sleep together in the dream, they're then they're in bed and Rita is next to her. She's asleep, but her eyes are wide open and she's speaking in Spanish. She says, no hay banda. Silencio. Silencio. No hay banda. No hay banda. It translates to there's no band. And Silencio is silence. It's also the name of this club that they then subsequently go to the go to club silencio uh where they watch this man he's sort of like a ringmaster compare mc type figure yeah and there's music going on and the whole scene is about him demonstrating the artificiality of the music so he brings on a guy playing a muted trumpet and then it's revealed that he's just miming along to to a backing track mm. he keeps saying there's no band no hay banda silencio and then a, a woman comes on and sings a spanish spanish version of Roy Orbison's crying and i think the history of david lynch and Roy Orbison's songs when you look at blue velvet as well he, he <laughs> there's something about Roy Orbison that david lynch is really keen on um <laughs> And I, I actually, I, I, I love this version of crying. Oh my I think god, it's stunning! It's incredible. I didn't realise it was it, Roy Orbison's crying mm. until I read that on the internet because I was so <laughs> totally moved by the yeah. performance of it. That singer and the way she yeah. performs it is unbelievable, and it did bring me to yeah. tears as it brings yeah. uh, Betty and Rita to tears when they listen to it yeah. too. And then, but the singer collapses halfway through, and the music and the song continue. And this thing that has moved moved them to tears. It's all fake. It's all artifice. I think it might be significant also that the song "Crying" it, it, I mean, it's, it's one of the great breakup songs of all mm. time. I think that's very significant too. It's, it's questions the the artifice of Hollywood, the artifice of the entertainment industry, also possibly the artifice of Diane's relationship with Camilla, along with. None of this is real. And actually, we get a moment of, of lip syncing beforehand at the screen tests. Yes. When, when Betty is taken away from the audition and taken to see the, the screen tests for Adam's new film. And you get these these young actresses, including the dream version of Camilla, yep. lip syncing along to old sort of hits of the 50s as part of their screen test. And um, Betty witnesses the moment that Adam says, this is the girl, which is what his entire life yeah. has been destroyed in order to bring him to that point to make him yeah. say this is the girl but then then the, the look on adam's face as he sees her yeah as she's leaving as she runs out like in her dream the director really does want her yeah the director really really wants her desperately wants it to be her but mm, this is the girl because of the shadowy forces i had no idea what club silencio was about and i'm really thank mm -hmm. you for explain the thing about artifice the thing about because i didn't know what any of the spanish meant <laughs> um, so <laughs> So that was really useful, and, and actually, I do. And I, when the singer collapses and the song keeps going, mm -hmm. that's the moment that prompts Betty to go in her handbag, and she 
pulls out the box that the key opens. Yes. So it is, it's, this is all artifice is kind it's, of the wake up. It's time to wake up pretty girl, which is what the cowboy says, yeah. isn't it? Um, so now to me, Club Silencio makes total sense. I get it. <laughs> so mm. thank you, Ed. <laughs> the cowboy. The cowboy. Yeah. When the cowboy delivers his ultimatum mm. to the director, Adam. He says, um, you will see me one more time if you do good, two more times if you do bad. We, the audience, see the cowboy two more times. Uh, We see him wake Betty up into being Mm -hmm. Diane. And then we see him again very briefly at the engagement party. Oh, is it at the engagement party? Um, Yeah, it's just... He's leaving the room, isn't he? He leaves the the building. I wonder, is he leaving having done the hit? Oh, maybe. I I don't know. And then, yeah, so maybe, maybe that is the night she goes to sleep and the next day is when she kills herself oh my god maybe I don't know I'd need to watch the whole film again to see if that theory holds any water (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah that is an unanswered question that I had of like we do see him twice more which means that Mm. so is is the cowboy addressing her when he says you you'll see me once if you do good twice if you do bad or does he like what is what yeah I I still I'm not sure maybe it's someone on the internet or a listener could write in and tell us <laughs> what the right answer is if there is such a thing in this film as the right answer and <laughs> um, what do you think he means uh, david lynch mm. so number eight is did talent alone help camilla um i feel like have we answered that is that to do with her kind of succumbing to the industry yeah i think so i think i think uh, yeah a, a willingness to yield to industry pressures yeah which is not to say that she doesn't have talent absolutely but i think what the dream is showing us is that actually talent is completely unimportant in this system. Okay, here we go. Number nine. Now, this is to do with, I think, one of the greatest jump scares in all of cinema. Note mm-hmm. the occurrences surrounding the man behind Winkies. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the scene between Dan and the other guy, and it's so uncanny and it's really stilted and awkward and weird. Yeah. And if you didn't yeah. know, you'd think it was just terrible acting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Also, the, the camera does something really weird and unsettling mm. in that conversation, in that scene. There's a moment where, where the camera is, it, the shot is on Dan and the camera is sort of raising up and lowering Dan uh, in the frame. And then you see the reverse shot from behind Dan as the camera is lifting up on the guy he's talking to and sort of raising him in the uh, in the frame. It stands out to me that moment. Do you know, the camera work in quite a lot of sections really stood out in terms of like, there are very few kind of static shots. And yeah. actually the camera is very often bobbing around like a third person in a conversation. Yeah. There are a lot of POV shots of the camera making its way through rooms or down roads or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it is showing us the point of view of, Diane, the dreamer, but also Betty and Rita, the characters. There's a lot of walking around the apartment slowly, (laughs) waiting (laughs) for something to happen. The first time that I noticed the camera doing that is in that scene with Dan and his mate, where where the camera's kind of bobbing around next to them, slightly roving. Mm. It makes you feel like a voyeur. You're in on the conversation. You're kind of watching this, but you don't know whether you're supposed to be there or not. And it all just feels a bit Mm. uncomfortable. (laughs) Dan is talking about a dream that he's had, and that leads them to... go out of the diner and round to the back of the diner where the camera tells you that you're about to be scared by something. You are creeping mm-hmm. and just as the camera is about to peep around the corner, this hobo figure appears and mm. Dan literally dies of fright. <laughs> yep. 
So what? Who, who's that dude? Who? Well, I say dude. It's actually a female performer. For anyone interested, the actor who mm. plays the bum, it's the same um, actress who plays the nun in Nun. Is it really? Bonnie Ahrens, who is nun in Nun. And she does quite a lot of horror movie kind of character work. So she's in Drag Me to Hell and Annabelle. Um, but yeah, she plays the hobo. What is the significance of all this? This whole <laughs> what's it all about, Ed? Scene. I don't know because he Dan is having dreams about there's a guy who there's a guy who's making it all happen. Is Dan another person trying to make it into the movie industry? And he's got these conspiracy theories about a guy controlling everything and keeping him down and keeping him in his place. Yeah. <laughs> is is Dan also dead now? Like is that is that stuff is that scene with Dan is that real world? Is it part of the dream or is it real world? I think it's dream. You think it's dream? I think it's dream. I don't think we see anything real until Diane wakes okay. up I mean I think that on a very like very basic level I think that the bum behind Winkies represents the truth yes and it okay. is it's frightening and it's ugly and some people don't survive confronting it yeah okay yeah I'm, I'm with you maybe what happens to Dan is a kind of foreshadowing I read someone online had a theory that because Dan and Diane are very similar <laughs> sounding names Dan yeah. is a kind of representation of part of Diane's like psyche and I'm like yeah, yeah. sure I'm happy to if go he's with a figure that in the dream absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but also because dan appears again in the real world dan witnesses the exchange between diane and the hitman so yeah. he's a witness to her crime yeah well so dan in that moment is standing exactly where he earlier on in the film was telling yeah. his friend that, that he was standing over there. Yeah. So, yeah. There's a connection. There's a, there's some something is going on. Yeah. Oh, I had my finger on something. Ah, no. And now my brain has gone, no, you got distracted by a different idea. <laughs> Son of a bitch. Son of a bitch. <laughs> I swear this, uh, yeah. It's all right, Ed, you can take as long no, as you want because I've got 421 hours and 10 minutes left on my Audacity recording time, so. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, I think I think there is something in that i think dan is representative of her and what she has done but also she's not yet ready at that stage in the dream to confront mm -hmm. what she's done and indeed when diane goes and is confronted by the bum reality is too much for dan yeah i like that i like all of that that makes sense to me you're welcome listeners We've sorted it. <laughs> so we are now at the final point that David Lynch wants us to consider when unlocking his thriller. Uh, number 10, mm. where is Aunt Ruth? No idea. So I think in the narrative of the dream, Aunt Ruth is making a film in Canada, which is why Betty can come and stay. Right. I don't yes. know how that helps okay, us yes. in any way, shape or form. Did you say Betty's come from Ontario? Yes. Because that is Canada. It is, isn't it? Is it Ruth who shows up at the very end of the movie almost, I think? Aunt Ruth is the first person that we see in the real world because we zoom into the box yes we go zooming into the box and then we pull out of the box and aunt ruth is in her apartment and yeah. naomi watts and um rita have disappeared from it so yes th that is aunt ruth has been in the apartment the whole time yes is it <laughs> is it or has she just got home i don't know i don't know i don't know don't know um <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I've got I've got no idea. No, I don't know what that's all. all about. Um, I'm I'm happy to move on, Ed. <laughs> Me too. Well, is there anything else that you think needs to be said or unpicked about it? Do you like this film? Mm. Yes, I do. I, I I very much do, and I I like it even more having unpicked it with you <laughs> <laughs> to, to sort of a answer another one of your questions. Yeah. I am I've I've got so much m more out of it having unpicked it and yeah. sort of 
clarified things with you. I agree. And I think that before this was a film that I was had no interest in watching again, really. And now mm. that I've seen it all the way through twice in a very short space of time, I'm excited to watch mm. it again. Yeah. And um, keep going. <laughs> I, I just thought I've been enjoying this uh, sort of so much and the things that we've unpicked I want to immediately watch it for a third time yeah. <laughs> once we finish this call honestly <laughs> a bit like I was saying about this Room 237 documentary about The Shining like conspiracy theories mm-hmm. about The Shining I think Mulholland Drive is another one where there are people in the world who have done a deeper dive than anyone could possibly imagine on this film uh, I think that you could go real deep and have a lot of oh, fun oh you could and that that's that's David Lynch's gift with this movie yeah that's what he's giving people yeah. is something to a, a puzzle a game to yeah. play we can't say definitively the two of us that we've cracked it no absolutely not in the last not. hour or whatever <laughs> Um, we can't we can't say that we've got the definitive answer no. to everything, all the symbolism and the dream logic of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we've had a great time bouncing it back mm. and forth between us. Yeah, yeah. Do you think it deserves its sort of status as one of the greatest films of the 21st century? Sure, why not? Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? There's nothing else like it. Yeah, definitely. I think what makes it special for me is that it's a really good example of accessible surrealism in cinema yes like it's kind of mainstream surrealism which is mm-hmm. is really really great there aren't that many films that are like that i don't think i think there are films that are surrealist but i don't know if they're necessarily this accessible watchable and enjoyable weirdly i also like the way he there's a kind of technical mastery to it mm. we can go from one scene where everything is absolutely beautifully shot and beautifully positioned to another scene where everything looks a bit sort of amateurish in a kind of uncanny way yes that you sort of you just you just know that this is something something that he's intentionally doing he's in, he's in complete control so from a sort of technical standpoint as well i think it probably belongs quite high up on that list um that is a really good point about particularly within the dream section if what we're seeing in that dream section is all coming out of diane's mind i think it's a really interesting kind of insight into her kind of cultural reference points because actually what we're seeing at times is very sort of tv movie a bit schlocky and a bit naff she's trying to get in with these kind of people high in the hollywood hills who are making kind of cinema um but then she's a bit sort of made for tv kind of Canadian girl who just won a jitterbug competition and it's all a bit sort of it all paints this picture you know she wants to be a movie star (laughs) I love that line that she has when she's uh, she first meets Rita um, and she's like Mm. unpacking in Aunt Ruth's house she's putting stuff in drawers Uh, she's putting stuff in drawers and she says of course I'd much rather be known as a great actress than a movie star but But sometimes you can be both (laughs) she's got this uh, sort of um, it isn't a sense of entitlement it's just a really unrealistic expectation uh, that yeah. you that all of us will have had at the start of our careers it doesn't quite work that way for most people uh, most people are krill <laughs> <laughs> think we should probably work out what we're going to watch next ed oh goodness okay <laughs> i've got to make a decision then haven't you I? have got to make a decision yeah so i'm going to tell you what i would have chosen uh, i'm mm-hmm. going to try and have a stab at guessing what you would have chosen uh, and mm-hmm. then you're going to tell us what you've chosen so uh, nice and easy for me well i've got two options one of them is uh to go down the kind of dark hollywood route um so we'd mm-hmm. be looking at starry eyes i don't know if you've heard of or seen this film it's horror sorry <laughs> i try i try not to do too much horror um but it's, uh, it's a fantastic 
horror movie about a mm-hmm. a, an aspiring actress who kind of sells her soul to Hollywood and what happens and it's um it's really good it's I think it's on prime um if anybody fancies watching that because obviously that isn't what we're going to be watching next week and the other option was to go for a film which opens with a woman emerging from something frightening happening in the Hollywood Hills and we would be watching the classic noir Kiss Me Deadly oh, I don't right, know if yeah. you've seen this it's a it's got yeah an iconic opening where this woman is running barefoot down it could be Mulholland Drive even out of the Hollywood Hills down into LA so that's what I would be choosing what I think you've chosen you said you felt quite strongly that you knew what I would yes would choose I think you've chosen Barton Fink (laughs) and I'll tell you why it's because um, I was having a little noodle around looking at films about Hollywood and Barton Mm -hmm. Fink came up and then I thought well There's that link to one of the Coens. David Lynch shared the Palm Door with. He did, yeah. Shared the Palm Door. uh, Best director Palm Door for this with, um, yeah, Joel Cohen. With Joel Cohen. So Uh, I thought, yeah, uh, for, um, yeah. Uh, the man who wasn't the man there. who wasn't there, and I thought, ah, mm. there's a Cohen Brothers connection. It's about Hollywood. That's what I think you've chosen. <laughs> well, I mean, we're we're barking up exactly the right tree. <laughs> I do want to pick a movie about Hollywood. I want another look at Hollywood. There was a lot to play with when looking mm. at films about Hollywood. Um, I was sort of I looked at Get Shorty for a little oh, while. Yeah, yeah. L.A. Confidential was a possibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, Devin Cronenberg's Maps to the Stars. Have you seen it? Uh, was an option. I have seen it. Yeah, I'd love to revisit um, it. It's a little similar to Mulholland Drive. It's super for, dark. Uh, isn't what it? I wanted for this, super dark. And basically, I've come down to two options. <laughs> they are La La Land and Barton Fink. Do I get some sort of prize for getting down to your last two? <laughs> Go on, and we're going to watch Barton Fink. Hey! Go on. <laughs> we, just haven't, we haven't established what i'm gonna win yet no we've not established that but um yeah. that's exciting there, there will be a prize i'm also i'm delighted because i fucking hated la la land <laughs> oh that's a shame i love la la land well that would have been a really several times that would have been that an interesting, been really interesting discussion yeah that's okay we can Damn. have that another time uh it's not available for streaming anywhere but it is available to rent in all these places so amazon apple tv google play youtube i will be watching my dvd copy excellent lovely so uh just before we wrap up and go what have you got lined up to watch? Um, well, again, this is all based on my course. So I am going to be continuing on with my David Lynch thing and I'm going to watch Lost Highway and Inland Empire. But also, um, yeah, there's um, in order to watch, uh, for the course I had to watch... Um, society and i ended up with a bfi trial for a week so i'm going to try and gobble up as much as i possibly can on the bfi app watch all of the kurosawa watch all of the kurosawa all of the bergman yeah i'm honestly I'm... <laughs> that's my aspiration every time i get the bfi player i'm like yeah oh, i'll watch quick, all quick, of these quick. and then i watch like two yeah i watch yeah i want to watch some samurai films there will not be anywhere near enough time for me to cover all of this stuff if you watch one samurai film on there i would say throne of blood throne of blood okay because it's it's great seven samurai is great as well but it's long long we will probably also try and go and see napoleon at some point this week um i said to um because i have to check with richard some of these things i was like have you got any interest in seeing this and he was like no none Mm. whatsoever and then we watched the trailer and richard's keen now so we'll probably go and see Mm. that at some point this week Uh, what about you as far as going to the cinema is concerned yeah i'll probably try and catch napoleon uh i want to catch saltburn as well Mm -hmm. i'm also seeing interstellar um also i'm going to a little short film festival tomorrow uh, in in derby Uh, 
Oh, very nice. Well, I hope that the short film festival holds some gems. It, 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 a lot of what I get to watch is, is dictated by whether Richard's away for work or not. And he is away for work next week as well. So I will end up uh, watching. It's like, quit cramming all of the fucking body horror, <laughs> which shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I do. I do a similar thing when uh, when Jim's away. If I've got the place to myself. Yeah. Recently, I watched French crime drama A Prophet. Oh yeah. Which is like two and a half hours long um, prison drama mostly. Right. Uh, it's brilliant, but I wouldn't dream of watching it when Jim was here. No, 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 no. Well, like I've said before, I can only sneak horror past Richard if it's got a sci-fi connection. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Event Horizon. Exactly. Anyway, on that note. I guess it's time to say thank you all very much for listening. Uh, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do give us a nice rating, uh, like, subscribe. If you've got an auto-download button, do that as well. Share it with your friends, all that stuff. That really, really, really helps us out. Also, do get in touch via any of our social media channels. Also, drop us a little email with any questions, reviews, favourite films. What would you have picked next going on from Mulholland Drive? Um, what did you think of Mulholland Drive? Have we completely missed the mark? Do you think this is... <laughs> about something else entirely uh, drop us an email at moviechain at outlook.com we'd really love to hear from you and we'll get reading some of those out I did also um, I had a recommendation from a friend of mine um, just to point out if you um, would rather get in touch with us um, by leaving a voice note feel free to do that um, I know some people find it easier to like make a voice mm. note and send it I'm not going to give you my personal phone number because uh, I hope you understand why uh, but if you want to do like a little mp3 voice note and then attach it to an email mail and send that over to us at moviechainoutlook.com that is also very welcomed we would love to hear from you in any way shape or form thank you very much for listening uh we'll be back in two weeks time we'll be chatting about the coen brothers masterpiece some would say barton fink thank you bye bye Bye. thank you Bye. bye